All right, you should have two sheets. You should have a white one and a blue one. Now, we'll come to the blue one a little bit later. The white one, chapter 13, or at least from it. Uh, and this is from Paul Tripp's book, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands, Establishing Agenda and Clarifying Responsibility. And today, with, we only got to have a lot of time, we'll let you do a little bit of practicing with biblical counseling as well. So two texts that I want you to look at with your Bibles. First Peter chapter, or second, first Peter chapter one. First Peter chapter one and verses thirteen to sixteen, which interestingly follows the uh, assurance of pardon from this morning. And you'll use you use text like this very frequently in, in counseling. Therefore, preparing your minds for action. The old King James, gird up the loins of your minds. Preparing your minds for action. And being sober-minded, which means having two feet on the ground, even as you think in heavenly ways, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's the heart of biblical counseling. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you when Jesus comes back. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. So there's the putting off of the passions of your former ignorance and putting on holiness, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And then the the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 11, where Paul uses the marriage analogy that we're engaged to Christ, now which in the New Testament time almost had the force of of, of full marriage. Um, And so Paul writing to the church, 2 Corinthians 11, 1 through 3, I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me. And there Paul's being very tactful. For I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ, which is what what it is to be a follower of Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, that is by his lying and by his deceit, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. And both of those terms mean having a single eye on Christ. But those really contain the, the, the essence of what you do in biblical counseling. So quoting Tripp in your handout, <clears throat> We need someone to apply the principles of Scripture to the realities of our particular relationships. And unless, you know, you read that and you say, wow, it sounds like i got to study in seminary. No, it doesn't. Learn from God's dealings with you. 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our affliction, that we might be able to comfort others who are in any affliction with the very same comfort with which we are comforted of God. That, that's, your, that's kind of the base text 
for, for the wells that you, that you have for biblical counseling. So that'll help you apply the principles of Scripture to the realities of your particular relationships. How does it happen with you? Keeping the final destination in view is the only way to solve the problems of today. You think about everlasting life. And remember, we're in a culture that doesn't know where it's going. And so you have to say, hey, there's a real heaven, there's a real hell, and you don't want to be headed to the latter, you want to head to the former, and this is the pathway. To Paul, the only way to, the only way to should be to get through life properly is to understand that we are engaged to the Lord. We have been betrothed to Christ, and our life now is a preparation for the great wedding to come. This next statement, folks, is so rich. In other words, your whole life is premarital counseling. Now, look, what goes into premarital counseling? Number one, you start out with a couple and you want to know where they are in relation to Christ. And so how, how do you know, you say to the, to the man, how do you actually begin with the woman, how do you know that you are being married to a man who is committed to Christ? Do you say to the man, how do you know that you're committed to a woman committed to Christ? And you start off with the basic question, if you died tonight, would the Lord let you into heaven? Why? Well, that's where you're going to begin with biblical counseling. People have to have a relationship with Christ if they're going to begin to, to build their Christian lives on him. Then in premarital counseling, you deal with very specific areas. You deal with finances. You deal with relations with in-laws. You deal with communication in marriage. You deal with sexual relations in marriage. You deal with children. Whoa, what is that? That's the average counseling course for anybody. Those are the main topics that you deal with with people. Finances, relationships, communication, sexual intimacy, children, preparing for the future, right? So, so that's why this is really a profound statement by Tripp. In other words, your whole life is premarital counseling, and all of your counseling is going to be, to some extent, premarital counseling. Now... In working with others, don't quit personal ministry too soon. We're not talking about a microwave where you say 30 seconds and that's all. Especially when you deal with people whose lives are messed up, you better have a long-term commitment to them. Okay, That's what discipling is all about. The goal is not simply to give insight but to bring change, and that takes time. Holiness, which means being separated unto God, is God's goal. And we must be willing to help people through the process of change that brings holiness. So, again, what is Christian ministry? And, and you know, I, I've mentioned this. this. This, to me, is an abominable trend in ministry. I don't know any other way to describe it. And I could mention a name of where the origin of this comes from, or names, but I won't. What is ministry today? You look at the minister who has a pulpit ministry and has written books and has become famous. And this titillates ministers. 
So they preach. It's not difficult to get somebody who will publish your book. Hello? You've got to sell these things. But men are sold, I'm sorry to say, they're sold a bill of goods like this. And who hurts? Not the minister whose books don't sell, but the people who are not being shepherded. A minister is meant to give his life to the Lord and to his people in ministering to them, okay? So that's, that's distinctive Christian ministry. Now, what are the ingredients necessary to encourage change? This week, we're going to deal with two of them. Establish your personal ministry agenda and then clarify responsibility in a couple in uh, three weeks, actually. Inst- we'll, we'll deal with instilling identity in Christ and providing accountability. But let's deal with the first two. Number one, establish your... I don't like the word agenda. It sounds like you're controlling people. But you've got to know where you're going with people, okay? So establish your personal ministry plan, if you want. An agenda is simply a plan for accomplishing a goal, a map that shows us our destination, that is, the changes that need to take place and how to get there. How do you do these things that lead to the change? Where do you do them, or where do you not do them? When do you do them, and with whom? Our goal is more than denouncing sin or solving the problem of the moment. We need to know what specific changes God is calling this person to make in this situation. Now, a little hint on this. Visualize the change that you expect in the person that you're counseling. I don't mean this in a new agey sense, but, but as you look at that person, you've understood that person, you've related it to what you've learned in your life and in the life of others, and all those things go up to make you a biblical counselor. How do you see this person two months from now, three months from now, a year from now, it's hard to go really much farther than that, but you want to think in terms of, of down the line, what do I want to see in that person? So, for example, if you're dealing with anger issues, how do you want to see that person deal with his or her anger at the moment? What things should the person be doing in his or her own life to prepare to pull out the weed of anger? If the person loses his or her temper, what does he or she do? And if necessary, you bring the whole family in to deal with it. But visualize those things. We need to apply the principles, perspectives, commands, and themes of God's great redemptive story to the concrete realities of a person's life. Now, now you've got one of them in in the sermon today. There's humbling and there's exaltation. Now, if a person is outside of Christ and the person is devastated, you can kind of give an airy, oh, well, things will get better. But, but on what basis do you say that? How do you know they won't get worse? And on what basis can you say that? But to a Christian, you can say, God says to us, that, that blessed are you when, when, when you are, go through times of temptation, for God is working out his purpose in you, um, that, that you might be made more and more like Christ. 
Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he might exalt you in due time. See, so you're, you're giving that, that framework. That's one of them, humbling and exaltation. Suffering and glory. Here's a person who looks like a corpse with a little bit of skin on him. And he is dying of cancer. You're going to... The, the health and wealth gospel, they ain't going to go there. You're going to say to this weak person, you've got to have more faith? I mean, how cruel can you be? But to say to that person, do you look to Christ? I do. I'm learning now something of what that is, and I do trust in him. You do some of that turf work. Your light momentary affliction is working for you a far more exceeding weight of glory. Don't look at the things that are seen, like your skin on your, on your bones, but the things that are unseen. Don't be crass about that. Be compassionate. But their suffering and glory is a theme. Sin and grace. My, my life's a mess. Where sin abounds, grace abounds even greater. Now that ultimately refers to the cross, but it's true in the Christian life, as mercy is more. Weakness and strength. I don't know what, to, I've never been in a position where I felt this weak. That's God's opportunity to show his strength. That's the whole book of 2 Corinthians. God's sovereignty and your responsibility, which we'll get to. So people, take people and say, okay, here's your story out here. And, and to a non-Christian, they don't know what to do with this. And even many Christians don't. Put it in the big story of, of the themes of the scriptures. Okay? Now three agenda-setting questions. One, what does the Bible say about the information that you've gathered about this person or people? Now, that takes humility on our part. It'll cause you to examine yourself, to search the scriptures more deeply, and in some or many cases, to cause us to judiciously seek the help of others who are more, quote-unquote, objective, experienced, and wise in dealing with the issues before the one you are counseling. Now, what does that mean? Here's someone beset with fear. And you know the Bible talks a lot about dealing with fear, but, but you know something of the names, but you don't know the addresses. You study those texts. And you can write down those texts. So you have to read them to others. That's fine. You don't have to be a Bible memory person to do it. But writing out texts and meditating on it and applying them to yourself. See how biblical counseling helps you? He who waters will himself be watered. Um, and, and, and then when you come to something and it's beyond you, don't hesitate to ask. This is one of, remember, God's purpose is never that we be a bunch of lone rangers. You need people. As a pastor, I thank God over the years, I've been able to contact a John Mallon or a Bob Needham or whoever the person would be, and sometimes even people in professional fields, in mental health and so on. I don't have to agree with everything, but to help me understand what I'm dealing with, okay? So don't hesitate to reach out. Uh, Let me give you another example. You deal with people who have been lacerated by cults. They've been in the Jehovah's Witnesses. They've been in, uh, I don't know, they've been been Mormons 
or, or the Muslims or whatever it would be. And they come out of this and they've got a lot of seaweed, folks. And that's not the kind of seaweed we run into very often. So to learn a little bit about the experience of that. That's why really biblical counseling is, is a way of growing yourself. Okay, so, so that will draw you to study, to get helps. And that's why here at the Haven, see, we've thought about our, our ministry. Okay, we're not, at least at this point, frontline evangelism maybe is not our strength yet. Although it will be. We pray that it will be. But you get people who, they're, they're dealing with issues that an upbeat contemporary hymn doesn't address, all right? And, and you know, they may feel good for three minutes, and they come back and they say, I got a husband who's an addict. What do I do? Okay, thank God there's where the haven has got strengths in ministry. We have good resources so you can help people with it, okay? So, so anyway, that, that, that's get helps. Okay, um, number two. What are God's goals for change for this person in this situation? Now, it's always going to be something of an outworking of the put-off and put-on principle in the Scriptures. Put off unrighteousness, put on holiness, so on and so forth. This question takes the general commands. What are God's goals for change? The general commands, themes, perspectives, and principles of Scripture and fashions them into specific steps for change. The goals we establish must address the what, how, when, and where of change. Now, now let me give you an example from, from Paul Tripp in, in page 250 in, in the book, which I hope you're reading. He has this person named Sharon that, that he's working with, and he says, what are God's goals for change for Sharon? And I'll give you some examples. One, to move from blind self-righteousness to humble self-awareness. You know, the person comes to you and you get this kind of thing. You know, I've, I've really tried to be a good person. And by and large, I've really been a, a good person and I'm really trying to be a good person. And it really deflates their balloon and say, you know, you know let, let me just be honest with you and loving. Your heart is far more wicked than you could ever imagine and your life has fouled things up in you and in others more than you and I could ever talk about. And they look at you. But that's the reality, folks. There was a minister, that, that uh, very dynamic minister, and one of, his one of his lines when he would get this is, your soul is more twisted than a corkscrew. <laughs> so he used something like that, okay? So, so that's getting them over. And they say, really? I've never heard this before. I say, no, but this is what the Bible says. But... That humbles us. So we look to the Lord for his grace. To move from bitterness to forgiveness. And you listen for this. People are always blame shifting. They're always complaining. They're always talking about the negative thing. And there comes a point where you say, Wow, brother, hold on here. Um, how much is your bitterness helping you? How much is your bitterness helping people change? You need to realize you need to ask forgiveness as well as others do, okay? To forgiveness and being forgiving. To move from seeking vengeance to seeking to do good. That's a big one. I just, I want to blow that person's brains out. I heard a story. This was horrible. A minister was asked to leave. He said 
in an elders meeting to one of his elders something like, I want to strangle you. Uh, hello? That's not the kind of thing you say to anybody, okay? Um, so, so to move from, from um, seeking vengeance, how do I do good to this person? To move from self-protection to loving and sacrificial service. That's a big one. You know, our culture is so focused on self, okay? I mean, selfies are kind of the epitome of our culture. Get out of that and think about others and how you minister to them. And people will say, wow, I find when I start thinking about other people and serving them, I feel better about myself. Hello? <laughs> You're beginning to get it. Um, to move from angry withdrawal to productive communication. I'm not going to speak to my husband again. Well, you're going to make yourself really sick. That's not going to do anything. And remember, when people avoid dealing with issues, those issues will pop up in other ways down the line. To move from angry withdrawal to productive communication. You help people. How do you communicate? I don't know what to say. Let's walk through it, kind of a thing. To move from separation to the pursuit of reconciliation. That's another big one. I don't want to talk to my dad ever again. Are you a Christian? Yes. How would it be if God treated you like that? That God doesn't want to hear from you. And lovingly, you go to the heart and say, No, the Bible says you, you are, if someone, if you have, you have something against Jesus, you have someone against, something against someone versus something against you, you go and be reconciled to them. To entrust a person to God, uh, you say this to this, to the Sharon, to, to entrust your husband to God. And quit being your husband's Messiah. Do you realize how what a dominant a dominant force that can be? I mused over the years over why some of the godliest, sweetest Christian women could be married to bums. And and uh, there, there's not an easy answer to it. But what I did see almost consistently is these sweet women, often very, usually very naive, they wanted to be a helper. They wanted to help so-and-so. They wanted to, may I use the language, save so-and-so from his sins. And what does a Savior do? A Savior gives himself for the good of someone else. And before you know it, they're trapped. Brothers and sisters, you're not the Messiah. Ministers have got to say this over and over again. I'm not the Savior of people. Jesus is, okay? So, so anyway, that's, that's the kind of a thing that you do in your agenda, okay? Um, let's see. And then uh, and, and be specific and then follow up. We, you know, we talked about how you handle your anger issue when, you're, you're, when you, your husband comes home from work. And, and you're steamed. The kids have given you fits. Um, your husband's late for work. The, the dinner got overcooked. You're, how, do you deal, how did you deal with it this last week? Okay, so, so be specific and follow up. What are some biblical methods for accomplishing God's goals of change? You know, the Bible not only lays out a surprising picture of what's wrong with us, but a surprising agenda for correction as well. What is it? Read your New Testament. And you'll come up with loads of them. Now, let's, let's at this point, we've got... 
Let's take the time to apply this to some typical problems in marriages. All right, so your biblical counsel. And I'm going to sip my coffee. Thank you, Mrs. Shishko, for heating. See, good communication. I'm thankful to you for that. Mrs. Shishko. It's not hot enough. Listen, I didn't make it. Okay, communication. I, I come to you as my counselor, and I say, I need to let you know, you know Ahasuerus and his volcanic temper? Uh, he's nothing in comparison to me. What do I do? <laughs> Who's going to be the biblical counselor? Karen, I notice you're putting on your counselor glasses. Not yet. What do you say? But There's no one right answer to this thing, but come on, your biblical counselor, what do you say? Iris, what do you say? You've never had communication problems, have you? Never. I come to you and I say, I need some counsel. I have a volcanic temper. It makes Ahasuerus seem like a match. What do I do? Get on your knees. <laughs> okay, that's a good one. Get Ah, very good. Tell me what makes you angry. But not just what. What else? Who? Who makes you angry? Excellent. What's that? When do you get angry? And here's another one. How do you get angry? Pastor, you don't know how many dishes I have broken throwing them at the wall. What do you... Come on, folks. What do you say? As long as it's not your wife. <laughs> Iris, at least at this point, you maybe get a D in the class. What do you say? I think I'd ask, well, does that change anything? Does that help? That's a good question. Good, good. Or, or better, better, because you're going to say, no, it doesn't. Or you could say, how does that change things? Okay. Yeah, avoid, avoid yes or no questions. But, 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 hmm? Ask them why they're angry. Yeah. Better, better. We don't know what our motives are. What is it that makes you angry? And the person says, if you had my boss, then you would know what makes me angry. Then what do you say? I would say what about him makes you angry. What makes you angry is another thing you could say. And you could talk about that. Remember, you got the communication, the home is number one. Um, who gave you your boss? Um, you can also ask, say, um, so may I ask you, a, may I, I love this, may I ask you a question? Yes. So is any aggravating thing in life, does that warrant our getting angry? So, so you get people, but there's a more basic thing thing that you want to do. This is biblical counseling. And I guarantee you, you probably will not get this in the secular realm. What, Jim? What if God dealt with you the same as you did? Oh, that's a great one. Yeah. What if God dealt with you the same way you did? Very good. But something even more basic. What's that? What's the providence of God in putting you in that? Right, okay, what's the providence of it? There you go, good thought for one. Here's one that will really throw them. I blew up at my wife the other day 
and I threw a plate, and I didn't throw it at her. Now, if he did, and his violence, that's a whole other story. Uh, then if there's a crime, but anyway, we'll go, we'll go there later. First thing you say, do you know what asking forgiveness is all about? Because that's where the Christian faith begins. And see, we can talk in the abstract all we want about sin and grace. That brings it home. And if you've got a person who says, what do you mean ask for forgiveness? <laughs> so, let, me, let me tell you what grace is all about. Okay, because your goal, again, is a relationship with the Lord. Let, let me use one other one, okay, communicate. Finances. My husband and I are always dickering about finances. Can you give me some help? Well, the class gets a B in counseling. Can I say something quick that will yeah, sure. put levity to the room? When I was getting marital counseling, I find this funny now. I didn't find it funny then. <laughs> <clears throat> uh, Mike Gaydash, who you know, yeah. a pastor, and had myself and my fiance at the time, later became my wife, grow up a list of our own problems that we believed we needed good, to repent. Good, good. And uh, I had this list of maybe 30 things. <laughs> Is that all? <laughs> My wife had one thing on her piece of paper. <laughs> and the one thing was, learn to cope better with Chris's problems. <laughs> um, well, thank God for the honesty of your, the one that would be your wife. Okay, because I want to finish this up. When you're dealing with finances, that's never really the issue, okay? There, there's finances are, are, you have, okay, you have surface problems and surface causes. Um, we're having problems with our finances and the causes we spend too much money. Hello, that doesn't help you very much. There are, there are root problems and root causes. The root problem is some form of ill discipline that, that's there, and then the root cause, a lot of things. Normally it's upbringing or whatever. So you kind of have to work through those things. But communication is usually a bigger problem in finances. How do you communicate about that? But anyway, but good. So you're, so you're thinking. All right, let, let's see. So we have one more opportunity for this in the time we have. Here's objective two. Clarify responsibility. And with that, look at your blue sheet, okay? Um, clarifying responsibility. This isn't exactly... Uh, Paul Tripp's picture, but there's a lot of variations on this theme. You will use this a lot. Think when you're dealing with people, you think of yourself, think of two circles, not God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, although it's pretty close here. Think of two circles. The inner one is your responsibility, which is to trust and obey. Okay? So the arrow pointing up, these are things that are your God-ordained responsibility and therefore cannot be given to anyone else. I got angry with my wife. I threw the dish. It is your responsibility to begin by asking forgiveness of your wife. I have no idea what that means. Good, let's talk about the gospel. Okay? So, so that's, that's, that's an example of your responsibility. The other circle, the outer one, those are concerns that you have. 
And those are concerns in your life that are not your responsibility. You entrust this to, your, to God. Now, for example, the conversion of your children. That's not your responsibility. Only God can change their hearts. But obviously it's a concern. And people will, will I think, actually Tripp deals with this thing in here. One of the most important questions in life is who is responsible for what? As you deal with this question in ministering to others, you will tend to encounter three classes of people. Tend. This, these, you do encounter three, these three classes of people. One, people who are irresponsible. Their finances are a mess because they don't ever balance their checkbook. They don't, they don't do all those. Well, okay, they run away from that. They, you tell them, say, no, you, that's your response. God is not, even with your mobile app, God's not going to come down and balance your checkbook, okay? So that's, you, that's the people who are irresponsible. People who are overly responsible. Oh, I try so hard. You know, I try to balance the checkbook and put the money in the bank, and I know everything goes, and I still can't. And you say, whoa, whoa, whoa wait a minute. And, I, and I've seen this. I accounted for every cent that we've spent in the last three months. And I look at that, and I think, if I did that, I would be in Creedmoor. I would be in an asylum. It, it, and that may be kind of healthy for young couples when they're starting, but people don't live like that. Okay, that's overly responsible. And then people who are genuinely confused about which things are their God-given jobs and which things they can entrust to God. So... People are irresponsible with their finances, and they're Calvinists. They're, they're wonderful Calvinists, and they come to you, and they say, Pastor, I know that our finances look like an explosion in a spaghetti factory. I know that. But God is sovereign, and he will provide all of our needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And you say in a loving way, shame on you. Don't blame God for your mess. Yes, God will provide your needs, and, don't, and, and be careful. God blesses, ultimately, he blesses because of the obedience of Christ, but he blesses in the way of obedience, and you're showing them what that is, okay? So that's where this little chart is helpful. So you can study that figure. People confuse the two circles in two main ways. One, they allow the inner circle, my responsibility, to expand into the outer circle, God's sovereignty, so that they function as many messiahs trying to do what only God can do. You, you try for 10 minutes to live as if you can change the heart of your children. And I guarantee you, you will be in biblical counseling fast. Because you can't do that. And, and yes, you act patiently, you act graciously, you act firmly. That's your responsibility, and you might figure out how to do that. You can't change the heart of your children, okay? Now, the other side of the circle is others shrink the inner circle and under the guise of trusting God, neglect to do what God calls them to do. The balancing of the checkbook would be an example. So, so I want you to think for a minute. Give me some examples of both of these where you have a concern or you have a responsibility. God tells you what to do, 
That's one circle. And then in the other circle, where, where you have a concern, but it's God's sovereignty. Give me some examples of it. There you go. Beautiful. Develop that. Health. Excellent. Yeah, because obviously you want to have long years on the earth, but it's God's determination when you're born and when you die. Right. So you do your part in being wise and eating well and doing things that will aid in your existence, and then it's up to the Lord. Yeah, that, that's a beautiful, there's a perfect example of it. My responsibility is to eat carefully and to exercise and to get the right amount of sleep, right? Except at the same time, the Lord gives his beloved sleep. So you've got God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty, he has ordained our days. And you can have the best diet in the world and still die of terminal cancer. Okay, so, so there's, there's a responsibility. Excellent. What's another one? Come on. You're going to do this. What's that? Our spouse's spiritual condition. Your spouse's spiritual condition. What's your responsibility? Pray for them. Yeah, pray for them. And sure. And the way you act with them as a husband for the wife and you know, how right. you treat them. Right. Exactly. At the same time, God can't change their heart. Great. Employment. Uh, there are, yeah. I've met many young people who just want to be a famous rock star or actor or actress, and they refuse to even start working in a menial job. Yeah. Interesting. Menial. Interesting. Like, oh, I'm not going to take that janitor job. I'm yeah. not going to wait tables. No. I'm yeah. Gonna, I'm going to be a millionaire like that. Yeah, there's an excellent example. Excellent. What else, Mrs. Shishko? In holiness, to be present when the Word of God is taught. There you go. Yeah, you want to grow in holiness, but you're not under the ministry of the Word or feeding your soul. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What else? Government. Government. Yeah, spend that out, Brian. Yeah. Well, we can choose who we vote for. We can choose who we campaign for. But ultimately, um, if we're unhappy with the decisions of our government, we can. Uh, we can pray, we can maybe even um, tell our neighbors why we're unhappy with the decision, but obviously we don't have a right to say storm the Capitol. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, excellent example. Now you see how much of your counseling is going to deal with this, okay? What, it, what is your response? And you, and you say to people, this is what your responsibility is biblically, and there's where God's sovereignty. Okay, so, so let's wrap all this up. Excellent. Good, your, your grade is improving as a class. <laughs> Guidance is really a matter of obedient, active trust. I examine the options before me using the principles, themes, and perspectives of Scripture. Then, to the best of my knowledge and ability, I apply biblical wisdom. How do I act in a given situation in the fear of God? I apply biblical wisdom in making a decision. My decision is not based on reading God's mind, but on things he has clearly revealed in his word. And when Paul speaks about the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God, it's not his decreed will, it's his revealed will that he's talking about. We had a man in Franklin Square, he had a bumper sticker, God's will is God's word. And that's what God's will here. So it's sum it all up. And this is, again, under establishing your personal ministry plans or agenda, clarifying responsibilities. It all comes down to trust and obey, right? And, and here's the summary of the Christian life. This, this, oh, this is what trusting and obeying is in Romans 12, verses 9 through 21. It will be a staple, staple text for you.
And so you're, you're, people say, I don't know what the Christian life's all about. Say, well, let me, let me tell you what God has told us in the scriptures. Let love be genuine without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Don't be slothful in zeal, but fervent. The word means boiling in spirit. Serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope. Being patient in tribulation. Being constant in prayer. Contributing to the needs of the saints and seeking to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and don't curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Don't be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, as far as it depends on you, and it's not always possible, live peaceably with all. It's beautifully phrased by the Holy Spirit. You say, but I've got people... And they just don't like me. Well, if possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all people. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Never means never. But leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says to the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And let me suggest to you as we wrap this up, you want to know how to end a counseling session? Where do I go with these people? What's the agenda? Have that text marked. And my guess is 95% of the issues that you've dealt with, in one way or the other, will be addressed just in those texts, okay? So there you go. That's kind of boots on the ground with, with, with biblical counseling. 